we have to be willing to unequivocally say to people that inappropriate sexual comments and jokes are not acceptable. There has to be a commitment from all of us, no matter the situation, to do something and to say something. When I'm handling cases, they say that they didn't want any trouble, and that's why they didn't say anything. Hello and welcome to our second episode of Humanity on the Hill, a nonpartisan podcast focused on listening to conflicting points of view, discussing the pressing issues of society, and understanding that which unifies and equalizes every single one of us, our humanity. I am your host, Luis Delgadillo, and today I'm joined by two student leaders at Cornell University. Hi, I'm Bianca. I'm a junior in the College of Arts and Sciences, majoring in psychology, and I'm from Chicago. Hi, my name is Natalia Hernandez. I am a junior in the College of Arts and Sciences, studying government and Spanish, and I'm from Miami, Florida. Today our guest is Monica Ramirez, the founder of Justice for Migrant Women and the co-founder of Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. She has authored the Dear Sisters Letter, addressed to women in the entertainment industry, sparking the creation of the Time's Up movement. Today, Monica will be sharing her perspective on women empowerment and feminism, along with discussing strategies for fighting gender-based sexual harassment and achieving gender equity across industries. Monica, it is a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so thank you again for being here with us today. So our first question is, as a prominent voice for Latinx women and women in general, can you speak more to what led up to you writing the Dear Sisters letter? Sure. So, um, you know, the, the history behind our Dear Sisters letter is that farm worker women, unfortunately, face very high rates of sexual harassment in the workplace. I actually went to law school um, and created the, the first project in the United States focused on addressing sexual harassment against farm worker women and other forms of gender discrimination because these are such big problems within our community, and particularly for women. Um, and so when the news started to break about the experience of sexual violence against women working in, in entertainment and other individuals who came forward who'd been um, the victims of workplace sexual violence in that particular industry, those of us who'd been working um, addressing the issue of workplace sexual violence against farm worker women for you know decades at that point felt really strongly that we needed to say something in solidarity with the women and individuals who are speaking out because we understood that there was probably going to be backlash against them in the form of retaliation and that if, if people didn't start to speak on their behalf or, or in solidarity with them, that there was a likelihood that the, the repercussions from being retaliated against would mean that they would ultimately be silenced. And we wanted to ensure that those individuals who are bravely coming forward weren't silenced because we understood the importance of their ability to speak out. Thank you. Thank you. Could you speak to us about justice for migrant women and what your inspiration for the Bandana Project was? What led you to use art activism as opposed to a different form? Mm-hmm. So, Justice for Migrant Women is actually the result of scaling the original legal project that I started in 2003 um, for the third time. So, in 2003, I created that legal project. In 2006, I made it national when I took it to Southern Poverty Law Center. And then in 2014, um, I I decided to make Justice for Migrant Women its own organization. So really, Justice for Migrant Women is a continuation of work that I've been doing for a number of years. And the the difference is that, um, you know, originally my work is focused on the farm worker community because I come from the farm worker community and there's a lot of need there. Um, But over time, it was clear to me that there are different migrant women in this country. And I think post-Katrina, our understanding of who migrant workers were in this country really evolved. And so Justice for Migrant Women is focused on serving the needs of all migrant women, whether they're migrating across, you know, country lines to work um, as agricultural workers or if they're migrating from town to town as domestic workers or, you know, from state to state to do different work. There are migrant women who are employed across our nation in many different industries and sectors. And so our intention is to ensure that those women, wherever they may be working, wherever they may be living, have the same human and civil rights as every other person in this country. Um, 
And in terms of the bandana project, I created the bandana project in 2007, and that was as a part of this National Farmer Group Women Conference that I uh, created, and that conference was specifically focused on sexual harassment against farmworker women. And around that time, there were immigration marches that were happening across our country. That was when there was a big attempt to re- reform immigration law. And one of the consequences of those marches was that there was a lot of blowback. Um, there were people who were really upset that the marches were happening, and um, there was a lot of action, negative action taken against immigrant community members across our country. So we had people who were experiencing widespread wage theft and other kinds of violations, uh, really with impunity because people thought that there would be no repercussions for their actions. And so around that same time, farmworker women started talking to me about how the sexual violence against them was increasing because perpetrators were telling them that Uh, nobody wanted them here in this country and that no one was going to help them. And this was a direct result of the the negative climate and anti-immigrant climate that was being created uh, around the fallout from these marches. And so it was around that same time that we've been planning this national conference, and I felt really strongly that we needed to have a symbol of our um, joint efforts to address sexual harassment against farmworker women and I wanted that symbol to be something that would send a message to perpetrators that they were wrong when they said that farmworker women didn't have anyone who were standing by their side. And I wanted it to be a symbol that sent a message to farmworker women that they weren't alone. And so the idea um, for decorating the white bandanas was formed. Um, and the reason we decided to use the white bandana as a symbol of our movement to end sexual violence against farmworker women is because... Um, White is a color that's been used around the world by women leading resistance and peace movements. And the bandana um, is used by farmworker women and other farmworkers when they're working in the fields to cover themselves um, from dust and from pesticides and from other conditions in the fields. But farmworker women have also talked about using the bandanas to obscure the fact that they're women, to try to avoid unwanted sexual attention. So it was sort of the coming together of all these different pieces at that time in 2007 that led to the creation of um, the Bandana Project and using art as a way of sending a message to farmworker women and farmworker families across the country that there are people who are fighting for them every single day because we believe that they should be able to work with both safety and dignity. So when talking about these issues that affect women, especially sexual harassment, how would you define what it means to be an ally to women in 2019? Well, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge the fact that sexual harassment isn't an issue that just impacts women. First of all, there are men and there are non-binary individuals who also experience uh, sexual harassment. And in the case of farm workers, because there are farm worker children who are legally able to work as of the age of 12 without restriction, there are also farm worker children who are experiencing this kind of harassment and abuse in the fields. Um, so what I think it means to be an ally to people who are experiencing sexual harassment is that be willing to unequivocally say to people that inappropriate sexual comments and jokes are not acceptable. We have to be willing to say to people that it isn't okay to touch people or to make comments about people's bodies or to take other action against people under any circumstances. And we need to make sure that we are doing our part as allies and as upstanders. When we see something like someone being mistreated in the workplace to speak out against what's happening. And, you know, I say that with, uh, with, with a pause because, you know, there are times in which people are being um, sexually harassed and the, and the harassment is of a physical nature. And sometimes, as an upstander, it isn't appropriate for us to step in at that moment because it actually might bring more physical harm to the individual or it could bring physical harm to the upstander who's trying to step in to, to resolve the situation. So I also think that as upstanders, we have to know how to get help, when to get help, and under what circumstances we need um, to seek help because we don't want to put ourselves or the individual in a a more dangerous situation if we try to take matters into our own hands. Um, But there has to be a commitment from all of us, no matter the situation, 
to do something and to say something and to know that, um, you know, often I hear from people when I'm handling cases and they say that they didn't want any trouble and that's why they didn't say anything. You know, they're just trying to do their work, they're trying to um, earn their living and, and they didn't want any trouble so that's why they didn't get involved. And we have to understand that um, it's on all of us to try to, to create a situation in which people are safe at work and it's on all of us to speak out when we see something that's wrong. And the other thing is that just because today I might not be the person who's experiencing the harassment or uh, discrimination or abuse, but it could be me tomorrow. And so if for nothing else, individuals should be speaking out against these sorts of things because we never know when something like this can happen to us and it should be our priority to make sure that it stops and it's tracks when we witness it. You briefly mentioned this, but a lot of these issues occur in the workplace. What steps can companies take to achieve gender equity? Well, many of these issues do take place in the workplace, but sexual harassment and violence certainly takes place outside of the workplace as well. And so I think that as a nation and as a world, we need to be working to end gender-based violence in all of its forms, no matter where it is taking place. But in terms of the workplace, I mean, the number one way that employers can ensure that there's gender equity is by making sure that there are rules in place um, that will protect workers, no matter where they're from, uh, no matter their gender identity, from abuses. Uh, we need employers who are going to give everyone the same opportunities, whether that be for different jobs or positions or um, for advancement. And we need to make sure that there's transparency. So employers need to create a climate in which people aren't afraid to, to report problems when they're having them. You know, a lot of times employers um, give people information about what to do after a problem has happened, but they don't give people information about what to do to keep problems from happening. There isn't an, an incentive currently that actually tells employees that it is a good thing to speak out when there's something happening that is against the rules or against people's rights. And we need employers to start creating an environment where people are encouraged to start reporting problems so that those problems can be addressed and other problems can be quickly prevented. But if there is an impression that if people raise problems or talk about violation, violations of their rights, that there's gonna be some kind of punishment um, against them by the company, then, then people aren't gonna speak out. So we need, uh, first and foremost, for companies to really take creating a climate that is safe for people seriously and ensuring that whatever rules they have in place, including opportunities for advancement and opportunities for people to be able to um, get more training and things of that nature, those are widely available to everyone. All right, so we are curious to know, uh, how do microaggressions present themselves to you, and how do you deal with them? Do you have any suggestions or advice on how we can address microaggressions we um, come across? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I, um, throughout the course of my well, growing up, you know, I'm, a, I'm a Latina from rural Ohio, and I was one of a few Latinos in my community and, and always... Um, in a situation in which myself and my family were the minorities in school, in our schools, and and sort of, and been, um, oftentimes I'm the only Latina in the room, um, and it also has been in the course of my career the first Latina to do many of the things that I've been able to do, um, and so throughout the course of my educational career as well as my professional career, I have faced different microaggressions, and and many times those come in the form of questioning my abilities because of my age, because I've often also been younger than most people in my position. Um, they come in the form of questioning my um, ability because of my gender and, and certainly because of my ethnicity. And so as a Latina, you know, I experience all of those, um, you know, those are all my identities and every single day, every room I walk into, I bring them all. And, um, and so, you know, I've had comments made about you know questioning my abilities, I've actually been literally uh, kept out of certain rooms. I actually had a lawsuit that I was litigating when I was in Florida, and I was the lead attorney on it. And the mediator involved in the case didn't want to speak to me, and so they, the mediator um, wouldn't let me come out of the room in order to participate in the mediation. 
So I've experienced lots of different things of that nature. And, and my number one rule has always been to just keep going, you know, because I feel as though the best way that we can uh, really address those sorts of things is by proving people wrong. Um, you know, I think that by staying focused on our work, and in my case, in my work, um, and really making sure that the reason that I'm doing my work uh, stay, remains front and center, and not allowing myself to become distracted, even by things that sometimes are hurtful to me, has been one of the things that's been able to help me be successful in my work and in my career. Um, because I think it's challenging. It's you know we don't want we don't want things of that nature to, to hold us back, and sometimes they do because they um, you know they they affect our self esteem. They affect our ability to they, you know they cause us to question ourselves sometimes. And so I have just been really firmly rooted in knowing that knowing who I am, being proud of where I come from, and understanding that I have something to offer. And to me, all the, the microaggressions and the outright discrimination that I've experienced over the course of my career and still can experience sometimes, to me, that's all noise. And my job as an activist and as, as an organizer and as somebody who's fighting for the rights of our entire community, you know, almost 60 million people in our country are Latinx. And as someone who fights every day for the well-being of our community, my job is to be able to hear beyond the noise and to really stay focused on the mission at hand, which is advancing the civil and human rights of our community. Thank you so much for that. Um, on that same topic, you know, you face a lot of challenges. You've been an activist for migrant women since the age of 14. What advice do you have for young Latinx women who want to get involved in advocacy work? Yeah, I actually didn't know that I was an activist at the age of 14. You know, I was just trying to do something that I thought was right in my community. And at that point, it was because... Um, farm workers were essentially being ignored um, in my community through the, through the local newspaper. And so um, at that age, I understood enough that it was wrong and asked why our community wasn't being written about. And that was sort of what began my career, I guess, as an activist. And um, you know, I think that there's a lot of teachings in that story. One, there isn't a certain age at which we can begin uh, to speak out for what is right. You know, I think that no matter what our age, as soon as we identify an issue that we care about or something that we believe is wrong and we feel like we need to speak out against it, we should feel empowered to do so. No one has to give us permission to speak out against something that is wrong or to speak up for something that is right. Um, and so my advice to people who are trying to figure out how to get more involved and who are interested in doing something related to social justice work is to just get started wherever you are. No matter how old you are, no matter where you come from, no matter how much education you have, no matter what language you speak, no matter what your um, you know, immigration status, there's a place for all of us in the work and there's plenty of work to be done. And it's important for people to identify what they care about and to start you know, in their local area to identify the organizations of people who are doing work on issues that, that you care about and get started there. And, you know, that might lead you to a lot, lifelong mission like mine um, of doing the work that I'm doing and have been doing for many years, or it might mean that you have other careers and you're volunteering um, some hours a week or some hours a month. All of it together matters, and I believe that all of us together can make the biggest impact possible, um, but there isn't a bar to entry, and people should feel confident that no matter where they are in their life, they have something to offer right now. So growing up, you faced a lot of challenges in tribulations, uh, whether it was in your professional or academic careers, even just growing up as a Latinx woman uh, in the United States. If you could meet yourself at the age of 12, the age of 8, the age of 16, what um, advice would you give yourself? Because we have a lot of women who, even from first grade, there are questions about their leadership skills. You know, a woman that uh, shows uh, these skills as a 5-year-old, 6-year-old is characterized as bossy, not as a leader. So what advice would you give yourselves? Would you give yourself at the age of 8, 12, 16, 18, even last year? What, what kept you going? What helped you? Well, you know, actually, I think that sometimes when people see someone like me who's so vocal and, um, 
that, you know, my work has been in covered through various platforms, which I'm really grateful and, and fortunate to have had happen. You know, I think that people think that I don't give myself pep talks, and, and the truth is I give myself pep talks all the time still. Um, and it's probably the same pep talk that I would give myself as a five-year-old or a six-year-old or even, you know, into my teens. And that is, I just really believe that if we have the right intentions and if we move in the world allowing those right intentions to be our guide, that it's going to turn out right, that we're going to end up where we need to be and we're going to do what we need to do. Um, and so I try to let my, my intentions be my compass. You know, I try to let um, my heart be my compass, and, and if it feels good in my heart, it feels right in my heart, then I don't question it. The only time that I actually question my actions um, and really kind of stop to figure out whether I need to be reorient- reoriented is when something doesn't feel good in my heart. And, you know, I actually I have, I'm so fortunate because some of my friends um, are folks like Gerana Burke and I Jim Poo and Fatima Glass Graves and, you know, some of the greatest leaders in this country. And, um, you know, we were working on a project together last year and um, you know, we were pretty far into the project and I felt like something, for me, I felt like something needed, we needed to redo something and, because it didn't feel good in my heart. And we were really far into what we were working on. And, um, and I, you know, I think we, I kind of feel like we need to redo this because it doesn't feel good in my heart. And so, you know, they're my friends and they trust me. And so we redid the thing that I was a little stuck on and then it felt good in my heart and it was, and then it felt right. And, and, but, you know, having friends who also understand that sometimes we need space to be able to reorient and we need to be able to kind of readjust a little bit. Um, that's also really important. So I would tell myself what I tell myself now is to just let our heart and our good intentions be our compass and to surround ourselves uh, with people who also want to support that vision and that way of being in the world, because I think that is how we're going to get the furthest. What do you think has been your favorite project to work on in kind of your entire life so far? Oh my gosh. Every project, I love every project I'm working on because they're very different. You know, um, my career has been, I'm so lucky because I get to use all sorts of tools in my work. You know, I use social media to, to lift up causes. I, you know, I put on big events. You know, I do things like my art activism and I just, you know, I write. I sometimes I sue people, you know, because that's my, my professional trade, you know, and so I'm just really fortunate because I have a lot of different things happening and they're, they're causing me to draw on a lot of different skills and, and I love that. I love that, you know, in any given day I could literally be doing policy work in the morning and, you know, figuring out the, the moves and a the big strategic campaign next and then, you know, like putting on a movie screening related to some relevant topic that I think our community needs to know about. Um, I love that. I love the, the variety of my work. I love the fact that I get to draw on a lot of different tools in my toolbox and and that um, that my work is never the same. It's always working towards the same mission um, and always focused on advancing rights and strengthening protections, but it's never using just sort of one mechanism or one particular um, skill or one particular way of doing things. And, and I think that's important in my work because I think that we actually have to use a lot of different tools and a lot of different skills um, and strategies in order for us to actually make the, the biggest change possible. And so I don't have one favorite project. I, I feel like it's a body of work and it's all connected, even though sometimes people are really confused because I started at different organizations and I wear different hats, but it's all connected and it's all towards the same end. And um, it's, pretty, it's pretty awesome. And I feel really, really blessed to have had the chance to build the career that I'm building. 
So as students, we engage in a lot of uh, social justice work. However, we often find that when we do engage with these issues, we become disencouraged. So what is your suggestion in maintaining hope when we're addressing social justice issues? Well, first, you know, I was a student activist as well. You know, I was, I've been an activist literally since I was a teenager. And I think that remembering that you're one or a group of people who are part of much bigger movements is important. And so even if something happens on campus that maybe doesn't feel great or, or maybe is frustrating, you know, that's one piece of a much bigger puzzle that many of us are trying to put together um, across the country when we're addressing those issues. And that incident, whatever it might be that's discouraging or whatever it might be that feels out of sync with the rest of it, that it still matters, you know, because there's some action that's being taken on a particular issue and it's the, it's the collective effort, right, of all of us working on these issues across the country, whether we're students or whether we're professionals and adults in our careers, um, it's really the collective work. And so I would say that just remember that the work that you're doing on campus is just as important and part of the larger, the larger movements that we're leading. Um, and really it's your training ground, you know, because um, I think that a lot of the skills that I learned I, you know, when I was in college, I'm still using them today. Like, I'm very grateful to the college that I attended because they, um, you know, taught me public speaking when I was pretty young. I think I was like a freshman or a sophomore in college where I did a public speaking seminar at my college. And, and I use, and I'm sure that I use the skills that I learned through that seminar today because I, I'm often um, doing public speaking. So just know that even if it is discouraging that your work is part of a collective and that it's together that we're making the biggest changes possible and don't stop because we need you to continue to, to develop those muscles um, in the work because you're going to be the ones who are leading the organizations and the movements that we are creating right now. come from a Latinx perspective, and at least uh, having encounters with a lot of individuals, especially on college campuses, who do not necessarily come from a place of like evil, they come from a place of an education, they haven't uh, been in contact with individuals like us. How do you perceive your role? Do you think that sometimes you become like an educator for a lot of these individuals? And if so, like at what point do you put a stop to it, or what, what role do you take when it comes to those situations? I mean, every day we're, I think we're put in a place of educator and, and every day I'm learning, you know? So I think that's the other thing that we have to be open enough to realize that just as we're, when we're doing our work to educate people about topics, we also have to be open to learn from them. What is it that they're scared of? You know, what is it that's challenging to them? What is it that I'm saying that maybe is causing them to feel under attack or to feel, um, like they are uh, not being understood. So I feel like it's a two-way street, and I feel like just as it's, it's frustrating maybe for us, it's probably frustrating for them. And, and I think our job is to figure out, like, what's the middle ground? Like, how do we get to a place where we can understand each other? And maybe we're not going to agree, but what is it that we can learn from each other that can at least help us make a little bit of progress? Um, and I do think that there is a point at which, though, that there are some people that I probably will never, ever move, you know, because they, they're they very much stuck in their position, and I'm very much stuck in my position, and, and I'm not going to move that person towards my position. And at a certain point, I think we do what we can to educate people. We make sure that we're open enough to learn and listen. And after we've done that, there's a point at which you have to move on because we have a lot of different people that we're trying to organize. And so we can't expend all of our energy trying to move someone who will never move, who will never see our position. Um, and I think we have to give ourselves that permission to to try, you know, to, to try and do listen to them and to try to figure out if we can come to a consensus and if we can't then we just have to move on um but i but i think that the listening part is just as important as the teaching because i think sometimes when people are really passionate about causes um sometimes people really feel like 
they just have to make people understand their position and they aren't open enough to listening and I think that that's also problematic. Going off that, I think a lot of this work can be a little bit emotionally draining at times and it's hard to remind yourself of what you were saying, the progress that's been made. What do you do to kind of take care of yourself just with dealing with a lot of these issues? Well, you know, I um, I try to spend time with my family. Um, you know, I moved back to my little town in Ohio last year in part to be closer to my parents and to be closer to my family, but also I have my own family and I have a young son. And so um, whenever I'm not on the road, I try to be home and as present as possible um, because that is also, you know, that's, that's what my family needs, but that's also what I need and that's part of my, my self-care. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I've just been trying to do a better job of drinking water and sleeping and, um, you know, and giving myself some time off. You know, I, I think that particularly as folks who are, you know, as activists on campus and, and considering careers in social justice, et cetera, I think that we have to be really honest about the fact that this work can be very tiring and if we don't take care of ourselves we will burn out and we would and we might quit doing it and so you know it is it is incorrect to think that we have to work all night and all day without breaks you know that vacations aren't um worthwhile or that you know that people aren't as committed if they need to take time off or if they need to step away like that's wrong if we actually want to build strong movements, we will help not only give people space to take care of themselves, but we will encourage people to take care of themselves. And so for me, um, you know, I because I have such a rigorous schedule, um, particularly since I'm on the road the majority of the time, being home and being close with my family is critical. And also when I'm on the road, trying to sleep as much as possible, drink water and eat well, those are all things that I just need to do in order to really stay in the work. How have you been personally affected by uh, the current policies of this administration, and how do you think that all women have been affected and the movement for uh, women empowerment and gender equity? Well, I mean, you know, I think many of us have been personally affected in that it's traumatic to read the news about children being put in cages and families being separated and torn apart. You know, it's traumatic to read about the fact that there are families who might lose custody of their children because of the situation that's been created. Um, so I, I feel like I've experienced you know, secondary trauma, much like many people who are consuming the news every day. And I've had the opportunity to spend time in Mexico and to spend time along the border with some of these families. And so I've been in conversation with them about how their lives are directly being impacted by these horrendous policies. And, and that affects my heart. You know, um, that that those are the kinds of things that I deal with on a daily basis, like hearing directly from people whose lives have been forever changed because of policies that are not fair and that should never have been enacted and that are going to cause lifelong harm to them and their children. And, and um, so that has impacted me directly. Um, but also it's impacted my work. You know, if, if the policies that were enacted last year by the Trump administration had not been put into effect and, you know, over the course of the past year we've seen a number of different changes that have happened with different, you know, just things just seem to be getting worse and worse. Um, so we're constantly having to shift to adjust to whatever the new um, bad announcement is. And that has a, an effect on, on the work that we're doing, too, because we have long-term work that we're doing and so when you're put in a position of constantly having to adjust to address the latest crisis because of some draconian policy that's been put in place that affects the overall work that we're trying to move um and so i would say that that you know i've been impacted in that way as it has the overall organization um and for women in particular for migrant women in particular i think that um unfortunately because so many women have been forced to stay in these detention camps 
um, in Mexico and also in other parts of the country in detention facilities, we've seen, we've heard about a rising number of instances of sexual violence against them and against children. Uh, we've heard about the trauma, you know, inflicted upon these mothers from having their children literally taken away from them, from their arms, um, or have, having been having their ch- children taken away from them and hearing them crying because their mothers are being taken away. I mean, it's just, for, for migrant women, there have been both physical and emotional injuries that have been enacted uh, upon them because of these policies. And there will be consequences that we won't even fully understand as a result of the last year and a half of these policies that will have likely long-term consequences for these women for their children. So since we are students, right, we often place ourselves in this bubble within campus. How can we break out of this bubble and become more engaged with the policies that affect the migrant women and children so that we can be part of this movement as well? Well, I think that just knowing who the organizations are who are doing the work, and and there are different ways to get involved in the work. You know, there are some folks who are on the ground, on the border, who are doing this work. Um, there are some people who are working with respite centers and they're providing um, clothes and food and shelter to some of these families after they've been released from detention. Um, and so there's, there's groups like that. There are also groups that are providing care and aid to families and immigrants in detention around the country. Some folks are doing the policy work, some people are doing the legal advocacy, some people are organizing in community. I think it's important for students to realize that, that there isn't just one way to engage um, and that no matter where you're located, you can engage um, from your campus. And so that might be, you know, organizing a school trip in conjunction with a nonprofit organization to take a group of people to X location um, on your spring break. That's valuable. That's people power. Um, it might be, you know, doing a collection on campus for um for coats or for clothes and sending them down to those respite centers um that's important too it might be you know raising money and sending the money down um to an organization or to an organization in your state um that's helpful but also doing your best as a student in school to prepare yourself so that you can then do the work within one of these organizations or even create your own organization, that is important as well. Like we need your job right now as students is to do your best job possible as students to be prepared to run and lead these organizations that exist or those that you're going to create. And so I don't want to, um, I don't, I want to underscore that because I think that there's a way in which students can volunteer and get internships and you know, potentially get summer jobs, et cetera. With, the, with organizations like mine and others across the country. But right now, one of the most important jobs that you have is to become educated and skilled so that you can put your education and skills to, to work on behalf of these community members. I think a lot of advocacy work right now has become really reactionary, especially just because of the way that the political climate is kind of around today. How do you think your organizations, various, have changed the work that you do depending on what's happening just in politics in general? Well, I mean, we as social justice activists and organizers, we always have to remain nimble because you never know what could happen. It could be a natural disaster or it could be a political disaster. And so we have to remain nimble enough to be able to respond to the needs of the community. And if we're not nimble enough and we just want to stay our course because we have a particular idea of the way that we want to move forward um, with projects, well, then that's short-sighted because our job is to, to be responsive to the needs of the communities that we serve. Um, and so that is just the nature of the work. But having said that, we also need to make sure that we have enough space 
in our agenda and in our organizations to be able to do the short-term responsive work that is required no matter what the situation is, um, as well as the longer-term visioning and building work and, and infrastructure work that is needed in order to build strong movements and organizations. So how has growing in a Latinx culture environment full of one-sided expectations for women challenged you? What helped you challenge these misconceptions? I mean, as I said earlier, you know, I think that one of the biggest misconceptions, especially because I, uh, people often think I'm young, and maybe in the work I am young by some standards, so being young and being Latina has been a challenge in some circumstances um, because people not necessarily taking me as seriously or they don't think I'm as prepared or they don't think I'm as educated or what have you and those things have happened and have presented themselves and truthfully I have actually used those misconceptions to my advantage because then when I have been able to surprise people um, by creating winning strategies or what have you they you know they were kind of caught off guard so I've been able to use those misconceptions to my advantage to, to further the work, but um, but it is certainly unsettling when that happens um, because we know that we're prepared and we know that we're ready to take on the challenges and to do the work. Um, so it certainly is upsetting and unsettling when people think that we aren't. But you know, in order for me to do my work, I have to just stay really focused and know that I am good enough to do what I set out to do. And if I need help, I need to get help and. I need to know what I don't know, and when I don't know something, I need to seek out the, the guidance of others to do know the answers to the, to the questions that I'm trying to resolve. Um, so those have been the, the strategies that I've used to be able to combat some of the, um, uh, you know, misgivings that other people might have about me and my ability to do the work that I'm doing. So this is related back to your work. Um, and connecting it to us as students. So we're often very passionate about the work we do right now, but once we get those internships or work or jobs after college, we forget to be active members of the community. So how have, um, or what advice do you give us to keep this uh, passion and this work throughout our lives and uh, communities that we um, continue being part of? Well, first, I would say that if there are particular organizations that you care about or causes that you care about, I would sign up for people's newsletters so that you are getting up-to-date information all the time. So even if you're not in a position to be able to volunteer or to do the work, you're at least getting the information so that when you're ready, you can plug in. Um, the other thing I would say is just that whenever you move to a new city or state or wherever it is um, that you might land, you know, take the time to try to understand who is doing the work in your community so that even if you yourself cannot do it because you're busy, that you can support that work. And supporting that work might mean, you know, making a financial contribution or supporting in some other way. But even if we ourselves are not in a position to roll up our sleeves or maybe that's not the job we're going to take because we're, you know, do doing something else. For example, I have many Latinx students who talk to me about the fact that, you know, they have to pay off student loans. And so for them, it isn't realistic to take a job in a social justice organization that's going to pay them far less and it's not going to allow them to have the resources they need to pay their student loans or support their families. Um, and so even though that might be the case because financial circumstances require it, um, staying connected to organizations that are doing work that you care about um, and making a contribution through a financial contribution or, or um, through other kinds of, any kind of donations or what have you, those are all ways that you're still part of the movement and still supporting the work. Great. Um, I have one question. So it has been proven that uh, women presence or uh, be, women being elected to governmental offices directly affects the type of policies that are developed. Uh, in the last midterm elections, we saw the largest number of women being elected to offices all over the country. You have women like Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez, who's uh, arguably leading uh, women presence in governmental offices. What do you think the role of women for this next election is, and how do you think uh, more and more presence of women in these positions, how is it going to affect or change the country? Well, you know, you've said it. I mean, there is there is data that shows that when women are elected, there are more policies that are put in place that are better for women and children. So 
you know, I believe that that trend will continue. Um, but I think that anyone who's in a position, a decision-making position that has the lived experience that is reflective of the community that they serve is more likely to put policies in place that are going to be to the benefit of that community. So, for example, yes, there's been an increase in the number of women elected to office, but there hasn't necessarily been a huge increase in the number of Latinas who've been elected to office. We still have a lot of work to do there. We've seen some increase, but the overall number of Latinas in Congress is very low still, um, and even in statewide offices. Um, and what we know is that if we have people in office who look like us, who have our shared experiences, who understand some of the, the problems facing our community because they've lived those problems or experienced those problems, they're more likely to take action on those issues. So we need to not only focus on increasing the number of women in office, um, but we need to focus on ensuring that we have a diverse um, group of political representatives overall. And that means we need to make sure that there are candidates who look like us and who understand our experiences because they've lived them in office at every single level. That means we need more people who are disabled to be in office. We need people who are non-binary to be in office. We need people who come from all geographies and all um, ethnic and racial backgrounds, of all economic backgrounds. Um, so it isn't enough to just say that we want to elect more women. What we should really be saying is that we want to elect more people who are reflective of the communities that we're from. A lot of times people are kind of left out of conversation, especially people who are from marginalized communities and don't really get a seat at the table. I think something that has been said recently is kind of pull up a chair. What advice do you have for people to really be able to do that and kind of join the conversation, even if they were originally left out of it? Yeah, I've always, I've been, always been a pull up a chair kind of person, you know, and I think that's been reflective in that every job that I've ever had, I've created. Um, and, and, I, and I feel like that's a message to us that we shouldn't be afraid to create whatever it is, create jobs, organizations, to make space for ourselves at a table, to build a new table, because um, sometimes pulling up the, a chair to the table isn't really the answer. Sometimes we need to build a new table um, with people who have ideologies that are similar to ours. And I would say that, um, and that sounds easy. All those things sound easy. And none of those things are actually easy. Um, because not everyone's in a position to be able to create their own job or to create their own organization or to build their own table. Um, but I think that what we have to do is we have to be supportive of each other so that we can do those things. And for those of us who are feeling like they want to build a new table or build a new organization, they should feel confident that, that they can do that. And there are lots of resources out there that can help people um, learn how to be good advocates, learn how to start nonprofit organizations, you know, learn how to um, run for office or seek a political appointment. There are resources out there that are available for people and they should, people should seek them out. Um, and the other thing I would say is find good mentors because we don't have to figure out all of the answers by ourselves. And if we have good mentors in our lives, they might be able to help lead us to the answers or lead us to the people who have the answers or who can get us closer to the answers. So um, I think as college students, it's really important to start identifying mentors um, who could help you along the way. And I have many mentors because over the course of my uh, life, you know, I've had, I had mentors in high school, I had mentors in college, I have mentors who are, you know, people from some of my first jobs. Um, and it's really important to continue to stay in touch with those mentors, to let them know how you're doing, to let them know where you are. Um, and, you know, and that might lead to opening more doors as well. Um, so on that topic of mentors, who has been someone who you've looked up to your entire life? The mentor that helped you transform or grow the most? Well, I've had a number of mentors, but I would say that Dolores Huerta has been one of my most important mentors. Um, you know, I met Dolores when I was 20 um, for the first time because uh, I called her and I invited her to come to my school um, and she said yes. and. Um, and that was a really impactful trip because when she came, I spent basically the entire day with her when she was on my campus. 
And, you know, she gave me advice about things to think about. And I told her I wanted to be a lawyer. And so she gave me some ideas about um, programs to look into, et cetera. And, um, and Dolores and I have stayed in touch, you know, over all these years. And, um, you know, I've now known her for over 20 years. And um, every time I'm working on a new project or I have a new campaign or I'm thinking about starting a new organization or what have you, you know, I often touch base with her to just let her know what I'm thinking and to kind of do a gut check and she's just always been so gracious and she herself is, you know, she's fire, she's power. She was one of the first. Um, and so I've learned a lot from just observing her and of course from learning about her history and her career um, as well, but I've had the, the good fortune of being able to spend time with her and to get really valuable advice from her. Um, and I think that Dolores has really helped shape me to become the leader that I am. So on the topic of um, the uh, having mentors and making sure what resources are around you, what other steps would you suggest for young activists who want to start a new organization or social work project? Well, first, I'd find out if there already is an organization doing what you want to do. Because, sometimes, because there's a lot of organizations that are being started, and sometimes there's something already happening. So I would say check out whether or not there is something that is already existing that is in line with what you want to start, and if so, um, figure out how to become part of that effort. Um, because we don't want to, we want to be able to, you know, join efforts as opposed to diluting efforts. Um, the other thing I would say is um, find people who are like-minded who want to help support you in building out the vision around the new project that you're thinking about, and then figure out what resources are available to help you, not just the resources to do the projects, right? So you might want to do an event on campus, or you might want to you know, do X project on campus, and oftentimes what happens is we get the money that we need to be able to do that. But really, you should also seek out resources to help build infrastructure so that the organizations that you're creating are longstanding and are not just dependent on resources from event to event. And they also include resources that will be for things like further development, leadership development, and other development for the leaders who are helping to run those initiatives. So you're obviously a very empowered role model for women, for Latinx, for the Latinx community in general. Um, and you seem like a very positive person, and I'm saying this from like actually having met you in person, but what do you struggle with the most on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's in uh, your line of work, whether it's in your personal life, what, what challenges you the most? Time. Not having enough time is a huge challenge. You know, I, um, I probably work more than most, I work, I work a lot. Um, I work pretty much all day, every day. And um, not having enough time to do all the work that is needed um, and you know, spend time with my family and, and, and rest, et cetera, that is one of the biggest challenges that I confront every single day. We have reached the end of our second episode. I wanted to thank Monica and our two amazing hosts, Bianca and Natalia, for taking the time to speak with us today. Tune in next week for our third episode, a conversation around decriminalizing and legalizing sex work in America.